0: Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Features Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Last week, Donald Trump declared the press the enemy of the American people. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people. And they are. They are the enemy of the people. Because they have no sources. They just make them up. When there are none.
1: So this happened at CPAC, which is the largest conservative conference of the year. That was last week, and I attended for the very first time. It was held in National Harbor, Maryland. A very strange and patriotic little place where roads are named things like American Way. It's it's extremely patriotic. Yeah, it sounds very patriotic. Yeah, all the restaurants there are like barbecue or barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure,
0: right. Lots of
1: barbecue. <laughs> Lots of barbecue. <laughs> In
0: this episode, we're going to hear about Prachi's experience at CPAC, which I blissfully did not attend. I'm sorry, Prachi. But we're also going to hear from Dr. Diane Horvath-Cosper, an abortion provider and reproductive health advocacy fellow for Physicians for Reproductive Health, about our Dick of the Week, which is…
2: Texas Senate Bill 25. These laws are real departures from standards of ethics that are well-established and also what the state boards have typically encouraged people or mandated people do in the past, which is to provide good care.
0: But first, our very special CPAC edition of The Week in Weenies.
1: Prachi, tell us about CPAC. (laughs) So CPAC was weird. (laughs) so CPAC is sort of like spring break for college Republicans. It's where— Oh, that sounds so fun. Yeah, it's a meeting of excited conservative minds, and they go and they schmooze and they network with people like Sebastian Gorka and Kellyanne Conway, and then Ugh. their internship interview booths and, and resume-building workshops, and it's really oriented towards getting young people excited oh, about conservatism yeah. and engaged in becoming future leaders of the conservative party. And so the parties are kind of crazy and weird and worth mentioning. Uh, Bart generally is known for the parties that they throw at CPAC. So Gabrielle Bluestone, another Jezebel writer, and I, uh, we crashed one of the, those parties and ended up spending our evening um, getting – I got pawed at by Dog the Bounty Hunter on a boat. What a treat. Yeah. It was – something, I'll tell you. I'm sure zero American women dream of that happening to them, too. (laughs) And yeah, we met James O'Keefe, who doctored those Planned Parenthood videos, and Brexit leader Nigel Farage smoking a cigarette on our boat. (laughs) Um, There were a, a lot of moments where I thought, why am I working so hard to get into a party full of racist trolls. You wanted to hang. And I just you really, needed to party. I just—that's <laughs> how badly I needed to party. <laughs> so when I was at CPAC, I also talked to some of the Republican attendees about who they think the big dicks are in their government. So it's kind of a—we're switching it up this week with our Week and Weenies segment. Special CPAC Week and Weenies. They, um,
0: these weenies are not kosher.
1: <laughs> we do not—Joanna and I do not endorse these weenies— Some of them, yeah. Um, Yeah, so walking around, I think you heard some of the things that you would definitely expect. But I think there was also a real diversity of opinion. I think big government is definitely the dick to women. So that's 20-year-old Samantha. The reason that the big dick is the government to Samantha is not the reason that you might expect. The true war on women is really um, an economic policy. So I think all the people who are in there right now who are, you know, pushing for women's rights or things like that. You know, we have full rights in the United States of America. So I think we need to focus now on making um, economics more free. um, And that would equal out
2: everything that they're worried
1: about. So then I asked her to name one politician who's currently in office who's messing up her life.
2: Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Let's see. Specifically,
1: I have a lot of issues personally right now with like Hillary Clinton. Um, She's not no longer uh, like a Yeah, I guess. Like somebody who's in office. I don't know if I can, I I can't think of any like specific name right now. So I think it's really interesting that she picked on Hillary Clinton because obviously Hillary Clinton was demonized basically for the last 25 years, but definitely during this past election, and, and she continues to be, even though she's not in public office and she's not anywhere in the administration and she's not actually passing any laws or creating any legislation or doing anything in the political sphere right now.
0: Yeah, I think people are having an issue. I have seen this in other places online where Hillary Clinton, the villain, largely of the Republican movement for the past couple of years, is just not there anymore. So they have to find someone else to really hate.
1: Right. I mean, even at CPAC, the crowd, when Donald Trump was speaking, blew up into lock her up chance. Like that was, that's still a thing that's happening. And Hillary Clinton is long gone from the political landscape as far as Donald Trump and the Republican government is concerned. Some other Republicans I talked to mentioned some very specific big dicks in their life. Um I'm very upset right now with Governor
2: Jerry Brown. He's my governor in California. He's the biggest jerk I've ever met. He's mandating that California become a sanctuary state. He's giving $25
1: million of our budget money to illegal aliens in a defense fund to help defend them to stay in the country. Uh, the
0: policies that Obama put in that, like Dodd-Frank's, that made it hard to get money from banks, because we open up a business, we have to have all these regulations
2: policies about financial reform that are often talked about by the left so progressives like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders about breaking up the banks about in, in keeping enforcing Dodd-Frank I think is um, pretty bad legislation because Whenever you impose regulations, they impose a cost on everyone, and often the larger institutions like those regulations because they make it more expensive for new entrants to come in.
1: The issues that all of them talked about were pretty standard issues that you hear from Republicans, but one of the women I talked to actually had a very surprisingly uh, liberal. Viewpoint on a very contentious issue. The thing that makes me most angry with uh, with Republicans and
0: conservatives
1: is is the demonization of Planned Parenthood. It's just hypocrisy on a level that I can't even fathom. You know. So that was Abigail, and Abigail says basically that if you're going to consider yourself pro life, as she does. Then you should support birth control because birth control significantly lowers the rates of unwanted pregnancies. And even if you, you know, even if you do believe it's a life and that you, you know, you don't want a life to 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 die, you um you
0: should know that the alternative is a, a coat hanger in a back alley. So that's uh that's you're not saving life by killing a mother and a baby. So Abigail brings us to our Dick of the Week: Texas Senate Bill Twenty Five which is also known as the Wrongful Births Bill, Um, even though we could have chosen just a plethora of other anti-abortion bills that have been introduced this week. Um, So the Texas Senate Committee on State Affairs voted to send the bill to the state Senate on Tuesday. Supporters of the bill say that it would only prevent parents from suing doctors if their baby is born with a disability, which is kind of a sweet doctor protection bill. Republicans are not particularly known for respecting science or scientists, but it sounds good in theory. But opponents say that it actually would allow doctors to withhold vital information from expectant parents. So supporters of the bill believe that it should be up to the doctor to provide information to a pregnant woman, specifically whether or not she's carrying a fetus that is at high risk or would have Severe disabilities. And so these are things that would affect a woman's decision whether or not to carry the fetus to term or to have an abortion. And so if this law is passed, the law makes it impossible for Texans to sue a doctor for intentionally withholding this kind of information about a fetus's health, which
1: is malpractice. That's, yeah. I mean, can you imagine going, like, say you're feeling sick or you're like, you need to go to the doctor and you see them for something and then they have your test results ready. And they're like, but actually I don't, I don't believe in giving these test results to you. Like the
0: doctors (laughs) like doesn't believe in a certain treatment.
1: Right. Like what's next? The like anti-vaxxers are going to push legislation that prohibits doctors from giving out vaccines. Yeah. They're just not going
0: to tell you about something that you could get a vaccine for. So the Texas Tribune reports that the idea of this quote wrongful births bill goes back to a case called Jacobs versus Thimer, which is a 1975 Texas Supreme Court case, in which somebody named Dortha Jean Jacobs got rubella in her first trimester of pregnancy and gave birth to a baby with defective organs, and she and her husband tried to sue her doctor Louis Thimer, citing that the failure to diagnose her illness early prevented them from knowing the risks of having a child. And the courts awarded the parents money for medical expenses. This is like a similar situation with doctors withholding information. It leads the parents to have a baby without knowing all the risks. So Margaret Johnson testified in front of the committee on behalf of the Texas League of Women Voters And she said, this bill places an unreasonable restriction on the constitutional right of a woman to make an informed decision about whether or not to have an abortion. SB 25 is a not-so-subtle way to give medical personnel the opportunity to impose religious beliefs on women.
1: So that bill, as insane as it is, it's not the only one like this. So there's a similar bill in Arkansas. It's called SB 340. Um, That would allow doctors and medical staff to lie to patients without any accountability. In the case of an abortion, it would basically enable them to withhold necessary information about a pregnancy, anything that might want to make a woman decide to end her pregnancy, and protect them for doing that. And this bill is actually very close to becoming a law. It's uh, on the desk of the governor in Arkansas. Um, And then in Indiana, the House just approved of Bill 1128, and this bill would effectively let doctors and abortion providers lie to women, um, and this time by having them give information to women that says their abortion can be reversed. And that's not based in any real science.
0: So all of these bills are all about depriving women in vital medical information about their pregnancy. So let's go all the way, all the way back in history just to set the scene. Basically it's all been tied up in whether or not the mother is an autonomous being and also whether or not the fetus she's carrying is and where one stops and the other begins all the way back in the Bible, they do discuss abortion, but when they do, it's usually like property. So if somebody causes a miscarriage, that person will owe the husband money because they destroyed the husband's property. But back in like the 1300s to the early 1800s, like middle ages on, it was basically before the advent of medical technology, it was basically impossible to know that a woman was pregnant until the baby started to move inside her, and that's something called the quickening.
1: Sounds like the name of a horror movie, The, the quickening. quickening. It definitely is.
0: And so because of that, people were generally okay with abortion before The Quickening happened because nobody knew what was happening inside there. And also it was nobody's business. So there's this great Cambridge exhibit called Making Visible Embryos, which is still available online. And they feature, their, there's this medical prophecy written in the Hippocratic Corpus, which is the Greek medical text upon which all of Western medicine is based. And it says, one should not disbelieve what women say about childbirth, for they cannot be persuaded by fact or by argument that they know anything better than what goes in, on inside their own bodies. A beautiful motto that every That's... doctor should have on their office. <laughs> um Again, also, if somebody had a miscarriage, that, that t- at that time, that tissue wasn't even considered a lost baby until the 1700s. It was considered a false fruit. It's not like a lost person. This was just like unviable tissue. This is
1: a rare example of when before we ha- had scientific discovery available to us, we actually – Thought about things a little bit more logically.
0: Yeah, I mean so many other things illogically. But yeah, I feel like just this one specific thing.
1: <laughs> I mean, look. women were still property. <laughs> that yeah. that whole thing <laughs> was still a big problem. Yeah, but we're gonna see
0: <laughs> as we go on in this podcast, we're gonna see how pro- um anti-choice people use technology and take advantage of it to skew meaning and to declare personhood where, where there is none. So there's also always been a debate about when an embryo develops a soul. Aristotle said that – I mean, I don't want to make fun of Aristotle for being so stupid. But Aristotle said that male embryos developed souls at the 40th day of their development. And it took twice as long for females. But then when they were born, they developed super quick.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. The sexism goes down to the fetus? Yeah. Wow. Um, And
0: so he was cool. He was fine with abortion before – They developed souls. And he said, quote, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun.
1: So abortion was actually uh, fairly common in the United States throughout and until the 1800s. Things changed really rapidly by the mid-1800s. A lot of this is based on research by Leslie Reagan Uh, She's a University of Illinois professor who in 1996 published a book called When Abortion Was a Crime, and that remains one of the best resources on the history of illegal abortion in America. So in that book, she says that abortion was actually uh, protected by common law and that, quote, the popular ethic regarding abortion and common law were grounded in the female experience of their own bodies. Uh, Joanna, can you imagine that? I Just being trusted by the government. I can't
0: having an experience in my own body.
1: Um, so it was really common to see ads for abortion-inducing drugs in newspapers. And then in 1880, abortion was criminalized in states across America. So except for when it was necessary to save a woman's life. And I want you to guess why things changed so drastically in the matter of just a few decades. I don't know.
0: Did everyone get Christian?
1: The backlash was created actually by the American Medical Association, which is now a strong proponent of abortion rights. But back then, it was led by a guy named Dr. Horatio Storer, and he did not want white male physicians to lose their position of power to midwives entering into the medical field. And he also wanted to keep America a nation of specifically Protestant white people And that was really the majority of the women who were getting abortions were rich and upper middle-class women who were generally Protestant. And um, immigrants were having more babies. So Dr. Storer got really concerned about this. And this is what he said in 1868 to justify banning abortion altogether. He said, shall these regions be filled by your own children or by those aliens This is a question our women must answer. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. Dang. Here's the theme of this
0: podcast, the entire thing, like every single episode. It's that men want to force white women to do something or protect them from doing something else. Right? And usually the threat is… And usually the threat is brown brown people. people. (laughs) Brown people. What a beautiful, simple history.
1: (laughs) And it's so it's so heartbreaking that that's the theme for every single episode.
0: It literally is. The theme it is. Every it's not like we episode. go into
1: every episode choosing that. It no, just emerges it through the research. <laughs> it comes up. Um, so, store one, and then abortion became illegal across America, and it was no longer protected by common law. Um, and in 1920, an estimated 15,000 women died from attempting, you know, or seeking abortions. So it was a really hostile environment for abortions, and it, it remained illegal in the states until pretty much around 1930. I mean, it was still illegal, but then the Great Depression hit, and suddenly abortion rates spiked, and everyone sort of looked the other way because now it was an economic necessity for the entire family unit, not just about—it wasn't an issue that was just about women's rights. It was now about economics for a, in a whole family.
0: Trust, um, you know, trust <laughs> men to make it a friggin' about— economics and then finally they listen. And then they (laughs)
1: listen, yeah, because women are—that's not enough of a— Yeah, human women. Yeah. Um, But then after the Depression, the crackdown resumed and intensified until throughout the 1950s. So this was the era, the really dark era of back alley abortions.
0: So in the 1960s, the ultrasound became pretty commonly used in prenatal exams. As Moira Weigel writes for The Atlantic, the ultrasound made it possible for the male doctor to evaluate the fetus without female interference. So now this technology is helpful, but it also kind of makes the woman irrelevant. And with the advent of the ultrasound, there was also this weird sudden autonomy to fetuses because you get this image of this floating fetus. And the mother is completely absent from this picture, even though it is of her. And so around this time, feminist writer Susan Bordeaux wrote that the woman had become not much more than a fetal incubator. And the fetus is now more important than the woman is.
1: It's, I mean, that's so true. It's still so true because who is that That Oklahoma lawmaker, Justin Humphrey, who a few weeks ago said informed women that their pregnant bodies are just, quote, a host. Yeah, he didn't even read Susan
0: Bordeaux. And yet, how did he, how did he come up with that idea? It must <laughs> be that it that's what they actually think. Um, so a 1981 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, again, Prachi, it beautifully demonstrates this attitude. I'm going to read it a little bit. I love it. It says, the fetus could not be taken seriously as long as he remained a medical recluse in an opaque womb. And it was not until the last half of this century that the prying eye of the ultrasonogram rendered the once opaque womb transparent— Stripping the veil of mystery from the dark inner sanctum and letting the light of scientific observation fall upon the shy and secretive fetus. The sonographic voyeur spying on the unwary fetus finds him or her a surprisingly active little creature and not at all the passive parasite that we had imagined. What (laughs) fucking (laughs) idiots. They're they're literally projecting themselves onto a picture of a fetus.
1: Joanna, something just clicked for me. Now I understand it. It's all about they're projecting that this is a little man inside. Yeah, it's a male ego. It's the it's the fragile male ego. Yeah, they're like, look at that. That That's me. That's a future me. And you can't, you cannot abort. Do not abort. (laughs) So, so, yeah, so we were seeing um, technological advances throughout the 60s and the 70s. And then that's also when um, abortion became legal. So it was, uh, as we all know, Roe versus Wade. We all know. Yep.
2: 1973,
1: <laughs> that's when this is court legalized abortion in this country. Uh, I mean, what they basically said, though, is that they defined it legal uh, under... A woman's right to privacy. So that's founded in the 14th Amendment, um, the idea of personal liberty and determining when to terminate her pregnancy. That was followed by the golden era for reproductive freedom, but it was very brief. <laughs> um, for a small window there, women were not subjected to any informed consent laws, mandatory waiting periods. Um, They weren't given information that would dissuade them from their choice or fed misinformation about abortions. Um, Abortion-related deaths became rare, but this period of reproductive freedom started to shrink pretty quickly. Uh, In in 1976, Congress passed the Hyde Amendment, and that banned the use of federal funds for abortions. Um, except in instances of rape, incest, or danger for a woman's life. And this is something that Congress has to renew um, every year, which they do <laughs> reliably, uh, adding, adding it onto the budget.
0: OK, so so because abortion is legal, as you said, Republicans and pro-life activists have had to resort to pushing legislation that trickily makes it as hard as possible to get one um, – And the Guttmacher Institute outlines 10 major abortion restrictions used across the country, which um, we've seen all over. So the 10 are requiring a parent's involvement in a minor's abortion, requiring a waiting period after abortion counseling, and requiring—which is sometimes several days and requires the woman to take multiple trips to the clinic, requiring an ultrasound, which is often invasive and not at all medically required, Banning the use of Medicaid for the abortion procedure, except in cases of rape, incest, or if the mother's life is threatened. Prohibiting private health plans from covering abortion. Requiring medically unnecessary and prohibitively expensive regulations on abortion facilities. Imposing a ban on abortion before viability, which is also unconstitutional. Or limits on abortion after viability imposing a preemptive ban on abortion in case Roe v. Wade is overturned and also requiring inaccurate or misleading pre-abortion counseling, which is what our dick of the week
1: is. I think it's uh, important to note that all of these restrictions, the, the people who they affect are people who are usually the people with the least resources. So if you have money, you can still go to a private clinic, you know, and get an abortion. And you, it, you can overcome these, like, multiple visits, the, all, these rural, all these hurdles. But if you don't have a lot of resources, then—and you have to drive across the state to the one abortion clinic that is finally open or that is still open, and you have to get a hotel and you have kids with you, like, it becomes impossible for a lot of women.
0: And then you go and they tell you, here's some wrong information. Now wait 72 hours and then come back.
1: Right. Um, and I just want to read— a sentence from Leslie Reagan's excellent book where she talks about the trends across the different times we've seen attacks on abortion in this country. So she notes that basically, when abortion was most firmly linked to the needs of the family rather than the freedoms of women as during the Depression, it was most ignored by those who would suppress it. Periods of anti-abortion activity mark moments of hostility towards female independence. I, I feel it. It all comes back to the male ego. It really does.
0: We're joined by Dr. Diane horvath Kosper, a Reproductive Health Advocacy Fellow at Physicians for Reproductive Health. Diane, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Can you walk us through just a typical day for
2: you? So there really isn't a typical day because— We are always responding to things that happen, and sometimes we don't know what's coming down the pike. But I would say within a a week span, um, I usually do a little bit of legislative work. So I live um, in the D.C. Baltimore area, and I go to meetings on Capitol Hill. Um, I do a lot of writing, um, and I also help edit documents for medical accuracy that some of our coalition partners are using. And then I also do media work. Um, and I also actually still see patients at a couple of clinics in the D.C. Baltimore area.
1: So how has all this anti-abortion legislation affected your job?
2: It's made my job very busy. <laughs> um, it's, you know, we we were always seeing um, anti-abortion legislation in the states. And certainly on the national level, things were always proposed. But there was no real threat on the national level of some of these bills going through um, and advancing in the way that they've been. And what we're seeing now, of course, is that there's no backstop and we're deeply concerned that some of the things that would not have passed years ago may go right through.
1: Can you give an example of what
2: some of those bills are that you're most concerned about? Sure. So we, one of the things we're definitely concerned about are gestational age bans, so bans on abortion later in pregnancy. One of the problems is that a lot of the legislation is written using terms that are inflammatory, terms that are not medical. And I think it's to really try to sway public opinion but a lot of them are not interpretable in a medical sense. And so for doctors, they're very difficult.
0: One of the laws that we're talking about in our podcast are laws that encourage doctors or permit doctors
2: to be inaccurate when they're speaking with their patients. Have you ever encountered that? So that we're obviously concerned about that. And certainly in Texas, um, there's a bill that's just been proposed that's going to allow doctors, protect doctors who purposely withhold information about fetal diagnosis um, if they think that a patient might have an abortion. And obviously that's, you know, both medically incorrect and deeply unethical, and it's essentially that you're being pressured to lie to your patients. Um, and certainly we see it in um, the abortion context with informed consent or quote, quote, informed consent laws where we're having to give incorrect information about abortion to patients.
1: So this feels like a silly question, but also clearly it's not. as We're <laughs> now talking about whether doctors can lie to patients or not. Mm-hmm. But is there not some sort of law in place that actually would prohibit
2: doctors from lying to their patients? You know, the codes of medical ethics are very clear about not lying to patients. Um, You know, the state medical boards generally uphold the practice of evidence based medicine. And these laws are real departures from standards of ethics that are well established and also what the state boards have typically encouraged people or mandated people do in the past, which is to provide good care.
0: Well, so how do you fight against a law that's totally based on bad science or no science at all?
2: This is a like a really big question. Um, yeah, it's the a di- question. Yeah, it's a it's a really difficult place to be, and I think you know there's the the bigger context of just this overreach of the legislature into medical practice. So there's that issue, and it certainly we see it in other things like with um, gun control and with um, the case in Florida where they were not permitting people to ask about guns in the home. So there's other places where this is happening, but then there's also how deeply and like kind of directly it affects our ability to have a good, honest relationship with our patients. So there are
1: so many different ways in which uh, legislators are targeting abortion right now. And can you just walk us through what some of those ways are and then also what some of the common abortion procedures are and the risks associated with them that lawmakers are now saying are not safe?
2: The thing to know, I think the most important thing, is that states that have regulations on abortion typically have more than one. In fact, many have 10 or more. Um, And so it's not usually that a state will have like one or two restrictions and then you go through those and you're able to get your procedure. It's the states that are passing these restrictions are passing them like in block. Like there's lots and lots of them. So they really have become a barrier to access. So abortion may still be technically legal, but if it's completely inaccessible, it's just as good as illegal, Mm -hmm. basically. And then in terms of... um, of abortion procedures and risk, I think the biggest thing to remember about risk is that abortion is actually at least 10 times safer than childbirth at any point in the pregnancy. And so when we're talking about risks of medical procedures, and every medical procedure has risks and benefits. I mean, I mean we have informed consent for everything that we do with patients. And so I think when we're talking about risk, the legislature isn't necessarily the right group of people to help communicate risk to patients. So we already have these discussions with our patients, um, and I don't necessarily need someone who is not a physician, not a healthcare professional, to tell me the best way to counsel my patients. I've been trained to do that. Honestly, same. Thanks. (laughs)
0: Um, So you filed a civil complaint against a hospital that told you not to tell people you were giving abortions. Can you say, how? What? What is that? How would they do
2: that? So that was, um, it started with an op-ed that I wrote about seeing my daughter's picture on an anti-abortion website um, and how shocking and jarring and, you know, like invasive that felt. And it was published in the Washington Post and then it was, you know, disseminated through the department. Everybody was excited. And then the Colorado Springs shooting happened at Planned Parenthood. And understandably, people were worried. But rather than address the safety concerns that have been proven and those safety measures that have been proven to improve, you know, clinic safety and patients' well-being, they chose to silence me instead and told me I was no longer permitted to publicly speak about what we do at the hospital. And what we do at the hospital was to provide excellent care for women who need abortion since Roe versus Wade. So that seemed strange to me, and um, I was concerned, and I got some legal support and was able to file a civil rights complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services. The outcome of the complaint is that we withdrew it because of concerns about this administration's potential handling of the complaint. Can you can cool. you tell us more about that? Please? Yeah, so it, we filed it in May of last year. And so... No one ever knows how long these complaints are going to be active or how long it's going to take them to be investigated. And just recently, we had a lot of concern about the potential um, for a bad decision to be made by the HHS, uh, Office for Civil Rights, um, under the new leadership. And so rather than let the case sit and get an unfavorable decision, we decided to withdraw it.
0: So, what would the bad decision be? It would be doctors can't speak about yeah. the services they're providing. Certainly,
2: they could have filed. They could have ruled against us and said that there isn't a protection for doctors' consciences. That that hospitals can prohibit physicians from speaking about what they do, even if it's something that they, you know, feel is a, like a calling for them. It's a moral obligation an ethical obligation. So, is that
1: still an outstanding risk? Then, with this administration, is there a risk that doctors
2: and masks could be effectively silenced? talking about abortion and well, I think the good thing that came out of it was that it did get a lot of media coverage and I think that it drew attention to the issue. I think it would be very difficult for a hospital to proceed in that way and know that they would maybe get the same attention and and some of it was critical attention of the hospital and I, I don't think that anybody would want that. I would encourage people who want to talk about abortion to work with their public affairs department at the hospital as much as they can, but know that there's actually support out there for people who do feel silenced at work.
1: Do you find that hospitals, are hospitals generally
2: supportive of abortion rights? How does that vary? It's totally variable. It totally depends on the hospital. Um, One deeply concerning thing that we are seeing is a lot of mergers with religious hospital systems, particularly Catholic hospitals. And we know, we actually have evidence that people are not necessarily getting appropriate care. Um, for things like, you know, a miscarriage that's in process, um, but the fetus is, you know, still has a heartbeat. And those patients are sometimes turned away, and that's worrisome. How can somebody,
1: like a pregnant woman, is looking at her options for where she can get maternal care? Um, How can she recognize if something is a Catholic hospital or a a religious hospital that isn't going to provide her the care that she might need?
2: It's a really complicated question for a lot of reasons. I mean, the big ones are, that may be the only hospital that's close to where you live. I mean, if you are somebody who's pregnant, particularly if you have a high-risk pregnancy, you don't want to be getting care necessarily three or four hours away because you need to be able to get to the hospital quickly if something happens. If the closest hospital is a Catholic hospital, that may be what you have. Another problem is that people's insurance companies don't always cover care at a non-religious hospital, or the hospital that may be in network for that person may be a hospital that might limit their healthcare options.
0: So I feel like one of the issues in addition to family planning clinics being unable to provide the services that they want is that they're also not getting the funding that they need while well, maybe at the same time, like as in Whole Women versus Hellerstead, being told to expand their facilities unnecessarily. What, what's happening with that? What resources do they have?
2: So in some communities, there aren't any other resources. And I think that's what's so concerning when we hear um, about these bills to, de- you know, quote, quote, defund Planned Parenthood or disallow people from using their Medicaid at a family planning clinic. Um, these clinics provide abortions in some cases, but in many cases, they also provide routine preventive health services like cancer screenings, um, routine GYN care, STI testing and treatment. They take care of men and women, and they also take care of people who aren't always comfortable going to other clinics. So, LGBTQ people people of color, uh, young women who may not feel comfortable going to their family doctor. Um, And so we know that if these clinics close or they're not able to, you know, take care of these patients, they may not have any place else to go. There's not enough capacity.
0: So what are you supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) What do we do?
2: Fight these laws. um. (laughs) Call your legislators. Um, And certainly, you know, I think if you've got We talk a lot about um, people making donations, and I thought one of the best things that came out of the whole um, election was people making donations in Mike Pence's name to Planned Parenthood. (laughs) Um, But there's a lot of clinics probably in your area, maybe even in your neighborhood, that are running on shoestring budgets. And if you've got money to give somewhere, sometimes it's really great to direct that at an independent clinic that's close to where you live.
1: And one of the scarier things that um, we're seeing now is there's research that shows that people are starting to search for alternate means to get abortions. Like, a back, you know, the days of back alley abortions, we thought were gone. And now that safe and legal access to abortion is under risk, is there a fear of that coming back? Have you seen that amongst women or amongst your patients?
2: Well, I think that there's good research, especially out of Texas, um, from some of my colleagues who have been looking at kind of the movement of medications across the border. And there seems to be an uptick in people who are attempting To do their own abortions at home before they come to the clinics. And I think that we probably underestimate the number of people who try because it's not something we necessarily routinely ask when people come in for care. Certainly women will get abortion whether or not it's legal and whether or not it's safe. And we know from this country um, prior to Roe versus Wade, and we see it all over the world still in countries that don't have safe abortion care, that people will have them. They just won't necessarily be safe.
0: Just to finish this part of the conversation is kind of a broader question, mm-hmm. do you have feelings about how feminism interacts with access to abortion? There are a number of Republican women who say that they're feminists. How dare we say they're not feminists for believing
2: that abortion is murder?
0: What do you think about <laughs> that?
2: <laughs> so my understanding of feminism is that we want equality for men and women and one of the things that's allowed women to have equality in places like the workplace um in education just in daily life is the ability to determine if when and how to have a family and if you take that away from people then you are necessarily kind of subject to your reproduction and when you want a child, fertility is wonderful, but if you don't, it can be a real burden and it can be something that derails your education and derails your career and makes it hard to care for the children that you already have. So for me, I mean, I can't tell anyone else how to be a feminist, but I feel like within the feminist movement, we, I think the idea that you would tell another woman what the best thing is for her body is really anti-feminist.
0: going to transition to our slightly more lighthearted segment called How to Handle the Dicks.
1: It's only slightly. <laughs> only slightly. <laughs> only slightly more less light-hearted.
0: serious. <laughs> um, where we talk about what we're doing on very micro level to deal with our stressful political environment. And Diane is joining us this week. Are you doing anything to handle the dicks? It's been really
2: difficult because yeah. um, yeah. there's a lot of dicks out there. So many. So many. So <laughs> many. Um, <laughs> And I think we all, among my colleagues, especially at the company that I'm working at now, Physicians for Reproductive Health, we really are feeling it like physically. Like everybody's exhausted and, you know, really overwhelmed and and feels like it's, you know, work kind of creeps into all of these other spaces in your life. What I've been doing is trying to reserve time at the end of the night, especially to not be like reading headlines before I go to bed Mm -hmm. and, or like the first thing I look at cannot be like, Facebook and Twitter and whatever. I Donald, cannot. You don't want to break up to Donald Trump's no, face? No, of course not. Like, what's the—I always had that, like, you know, kind of sordid fascination, like, what happened last night? Like, what did he say? But know, that's just not a true. good way to wake up. I know. I found myself doing that, too, and yeah. I wake up to immediate nightmare.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. He's it, in my dreams at this point. For like, sure. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rather nightmares.
0: <laughs> um, For— I mean, just as an example for a way that I have inadvertently been dealing with it, I've had a lot of apartment troubles. Prachi has heard about this for (laughs) truly five weeks of the podcast. Um, But I've been moving this week, and I find that having one task at night that is mildly (laughs) irritating… Is a very good way to take my mind off of it's,
1: it's like you're replacing whatever awfulness of Trump is with something that's more immediately awful.
0: Yeah, I'm, and I'm affecting you. I'm replacing a life-threatening yeah. stress with a non-life-threatening stress, <laughs> and I feel that's like harm reduction. It's. Right? I think yeah. it's as a doctor. Would you say that that is positive? I think
1: so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think the biggest thing that I am doing, in addition to trying to not read headlines right before I go to bed, which I'm not successful at. I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I want to revisit it because you're doubling I'm sticking down. On sticking with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sticking with it. It's just it's it's I'm committing to Krav Maga. It's a form of martial arts. Maybe podcast
0: but, week eight, how to handle the dicks, will like try some tame in studio combat
1: I'll <laughs> I'll walk all of our listeners through yeah we yeah. learned this cool move where you like put your finger under somebody's nose and flip them
2: oh nice flip yeah them, but flip, flip the body by, all the way yeah up so you down.
1: flip yeah I don't really understand how I would be able to do this but
2: hey the next subway groper gets flipped over <laughs> that's what you should do yeah that's a good so story. it's
1: a great way to get out my aggression
0: Thanks so much for listening to Big Time Dicks and please rate and review us on iTunes so that other people can find the podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher.
1: Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.